0: You better listen, my brother. Cause if you do, you can hear. There are voices still calling from across the years. And they're crying across the ocean. They're crying across the land. And they will until we all come to
1: understand. None of us are free. None of us are free.
2: All right, welcome, welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Network's weekly live stream. I'm Chris Garlock from Union City Radio. My co host this week, very pleased to welcome Steve Zeltzer from the Work Week radio show in California's Bay Area. Today, we're going to talk about the F word that's fascism and independent politics and working class response to attacks on labor. So we've got a great uh, panel that we've put together today and to introduce them and get the ball rolling. Let me turn it over to Steve.
3: Okay, well, thanks, Chris, for hosting this uh, program and the series of programs on labor issues facing working class people and uh, the future of labor. Um, And tonight's uh, panel is gonna be on uh, the rise of the fascist movement and what labor should do in response and the, and the future of labor. So I think it's a, a, a critical uh, really uh, issue uh, is particularly with the insurrection, attempted coup and uh, these fascist forces that are growing around the country as well as uh, the increasing racist attacks, anti-Semitic attacks that are going on not just in the United States but around the world. It's a, a great threat to democracy, working class people and uh, solidarity certainly. So uh, tonight's joining us and not all our, our panelists are on yet they'd be coming on is David Van Dusen who is the uh, president of the Vermont uh, State Federation of Labor and his council uh, is the only state council actually that was concerned uh, about the rise of uh, a coup and threat of an insurrection on around the elections and the threat of uh, uh, former president Trump refusing to accept the elections and they passed a resolution which you can talk about the action that they took and what uh, what the results of uh, Trump's activities have been in in relationship to uh, what happened in Washington. And also, uh, Carol Lang is joining us. She's a member of AFT PSC. Uh, she's a professor at CUNY College Bronx College, and and her uh, her congresswoman has also been personally threatened as a result of what happened on uh, on the sixth. So. Um, Anyway, why don't we we start, and the other panelists will probably be joining. So uh, David, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and talk about the resolution that you uh, passed, your debate in your state fed, and and, uh, what your concerns are as far as going forward for working people and labor in this country.
4: Right, the Vermont AFL-CIO from the start took threats of a possible Trump coup long before the election, very seriously. Our own Senator Bernie Sanders, who you may have heard of, uh, began to sound the trumpets about his concerns some months before the election. We had a number of uh, discussions with various leaders and various locals leading up until our uh, November, uh, I'm sorry, October uh, and then November um, elections and then our convention. We asked our members to have a robust discussion debate about the ramifications of a possible coup and what we would be prepared to do uh, in a reaction if that was to come to be. After a long discussion, a long debate where many points of view were heard, our members overwhelmingly voted to authorize their executive board, which I serve on, to call for a general strike in the event that power was not transferred uh, away from Trump into to Biden on uh, January 20th. So we were prepared to pull that trigger We had conversations with allies from various political groups, uh, city councilors, across uh, different communities across Vermont. And this was something that we thought was very probable. And I think that what we saw on uh, the 6th with uh, the insurrection in DC, showed us that our fears were well-founded. Now, we feel that we got through this, we are lucky, but we can't rely on luck as a strategy going forward. We have to recognize that fascism uh, which essentially Trump represents is mainstream, the and they have a playbook, and we need to be ready to take action as required, as necessary, to not only beat back their threats now, but those that may arise in the future.
3: Okay, you've been listening to uh, David Van Dusen, who is the uh, president of the Vermont AFL-CIO. It's uh, the only state fed. There were local uh, labor councils, but it's the only state fed that actually warned about the threat of a coup and a general uh, uh, in, you know, threat to democracy and, and said that the labor movement should have a general strike. Well, David, uh, you had some uh, obstacles getting that, that resolution uh, uh, passed. Why don't you talk about that? Because uh, there was some effort to stop it.
4: Well, Steve, I'd rather not air all the dirty laundry uh, in public, so to speak. But let's say that there were some powerful people that opposed us taking that action. Uh, We talked about it, and there could have been ramifications for us as a result. We talked about this as a labor movement. We talked about this as leaders of the many different locals uh, in our state. And we came to the conclusion that there are times in history, moments, where you're either on the right side or you're on the wrong side. And if we weren't ready to pull that trigger then and there, to call for a general strike and organize one here in the Green Mountains of Vermont, then when would be the right time? It certainly wouldn't be after a fascist uh, coup was carried out in Washington. I mean, this was either now or never. So you tell me, if not then, then when?
2: David, yeah, I've got a, a question, just uh, more of a sort of a programmatic question about the role of state feds and central labor councils, uh, you know, in in the labor movement. Um, you know, you're you're at a state fed, uh, Vermont, obviously, it's a, it's a relatively small state, but I mean, I think there's been some. Some interesting discussion among state feds and labor councils, right? Can you speak to that specifically about the the coup attempt and the general strike, or are you talking about? I'd, like, yeah, I'd go broader. I mean, I, you know, obviously that was the most recent one, but I mean this this has come up. It's come up over war. It's come up. You know, it's, it's come up over yeah. a number of different issues. So I'm just okay. Well. After we passed our resolution,
4: uh, our new executive director, Liz Medina from the UAW, uh, made the calls, you know, contacted the Rochester, they were invited to our, the CLC there, Central Labor Council were invited to our convention. Unfortunately, the president had a conflict and couldn't make it, Uh, but we did the rounds of reaching out. And then we also partook in the larger ad hoc uh, committee, nationwide committee for labor action to defend democracy as well where a lot of very good discussions took place, but that is just a start. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. The structure of organized labor in this country is incredibly undemocratic. Right. It's not like a regular uh, situation where you have one member, one vote. Uh, There is not a robust uh, internal debate within the labor movement, at least within the sanctioned bodies of the labor movement. We need to change that. We need to be thinking about doing things like calling for a summit discuss with affiliates all across the country what kind of actions we're ready to take to advance a progressive agenda, uh, to make alliances with community organizations, and to defend ourselves against the rise of fascism. I mean, we need to do much more than we're doing. And the old, old boys club, the old guard method of uh, tackling politics and cozying up to a few key Democrats in Washington, D.C., it's ineffective. It hasn't worked. Uh, by what, any measure you could take, it has not worked. So if we do not learn to grow, learn to be more democratic ourselves as we defend democracy, we're not gonna be successful, but I'm an optimist. I believe we will do this and I believe uh, the makings are there for this to happen right now.
3: Great, and also joining us, and I I was, uh, we're gonna go before you, Carol, is uh, Trent Willis, he's president of the ILW Local 10. The ILW Mm -hmm. actually was part of a general strike in San Francisco in 1934 and has a tradition of, democracy and and struggle uh, to defend working people and also racist attacks on your own members uh, who uh, that have happened so welcome to this program Trent maybe you can talk about this issue of the rise of fascism and what labor should do about it and uh, where we're going
2: Trent you're uh, you're muted you need to unmute yourself there brother there
3: you go
5: can you hear me now yes sir all right uh thank you and uh uh, solidarity greetings to to each and every one of you, um, and thanks for having me. Good to have you on board.
3: So Trent, maybe you can talk about your concern uh, as the leader of Local 10 and for the labor movement you had on Juneteenth, one of the largest labor marches uh, ever held uh, around Juneteenth. It was historic, and the ILW has been in the leadership, uh, particularly Local 10, of trying to mobilize the labor movement independently. Um, against war, against racist attacks. And what we've had now is an escalating racist a- attack on workers in this country, on Blacks, on Latinos, on Asians. And it seems it's not going away even after this uh, attempted coup and insurrection.
5: Right, yeah, well, uh, the thing about the, the ILWU that uh, uh, makes me proud of being, not only being the president, but being a member is that I, I recall um, when I first uh, became a member. Um, one of the members who who uh, um, took the time to study the history of the union, um, I was able to recover the first um, first set of minutes for the first uh, uh, convention held by the ILWU in 1937. You know, we when in 1934, a lot of people are confused. We 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 were not the ILWU um, uh, in 1934 after the conclusion of the general strike. We were still an ILA local um, at that time. Uh, we became the ILWU in 1937 when we broke off from the ILA. Um, and at our first uh, convention, um, when I was reading our documents, um, I was very proud to see that that uh, one of the first items of business. Uh, was to uh, absolutely prohibit any type of fascist, racist, racist, or uh, sexist, or any type of, of, of discriminatory behavior uh, within our ranks, um, and I was very proud to see that because that was back in 1938, and if you can imagine how how hard it was to take a stance like that in 1938, and the condition. Uh, that our country was in morally uh, back then, um, you can understand why uh, uh, me, as an African-American born and raised here in America, would be proud to be a member of an organization who who would take that stance back even before the 40s. Um, How fascism, uh, in my opinion, uh, a fascist government um, usually is accompanied by an autocrat. Um, it's, it's, it's usually a system that is not uh, uh, favorable for working people. Um, and um, this has been a known fact for a long time. Uh, this is why we here um, in this country, uh, our, our, our brothers and sisters here who are labor friendly, we do all we can to fight against uh, the rise of fasc- fascism in this country. Um, I, I believe that, that fascism, racism, and all of these different components uh, add up to one huge component, which is uh, systemic oppression. And oh, oh, systemic oppression is a tool um, that I personally believe is used uh, by um, the, the greedy, uh, the controllers of this, uh, I guess this, uh, what do you wanna call it? The, the um uh, capitalist system because the capitalist system in my opinion means that uh, I have to capitalize on you in order to get ahead in order to make it um, and that that is the direct opposite ideology of a union uh, unions ideology is is uh, working people work together we all feed each other and make sure we all eat make sure everyone's taken care of so those two, ideologies are clashing and uh, fascism is just one of the tools um, that oh, oh, uh, uh, the controllers of systemic oppression use to divide workers because if you can divide workers and get them to be to concentrate on racism and being racist against each other you know uh, um, thinking about all of these 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 side items instead of thinking about, uniting and coming together under common causes, then you as a, a, a person who is capitalizing on everyone's labor is getting away scot-free. But once those workers decide to say, hey, I don't care if you're white, I don't care if you're Chinese, I don't care if you're Muslim, I don't care uh, if you're uh, a member of the LGBTQ community, I don't care about any of that i don't care about identity politics and all of these different things that are thrown in the pot when we're trying to organize for workers rights if we can if we can get to the point where we're organizing under one banner as workers then there are going to be a lot of very rich people that are going to be in a lot of trouble in this country amen brother.
2: hey uh, steve before you go to uh carol i think she was up next but do you want to introduce uh, amendment
3: Yeah, Mehmet Byron is a member of uh, Pacific Media Workers Guild in San Francisco, he's a journalist, and uh, particularly he's been reporting on the labor movement in Turkey, and uh, the struggle there against repression and the the government there who uh, uh, Trump was getting along with quite well, Erdogan. (laughs) They had a lot of a lot of common things that they did attacking minorities, attacking journalists and repressing the labor movement. So. Okay. Yeah,
6: well, uh, thank you very much uh, everybody for, uh, uh, for this uh, um, broadcast and also for inviting me. Um, uh, yes, uh, I've ran through several uh, uh, fascist coups and uh, I've uh, personally saw what it meant for the working class. Um, fascism comes as the first uh, attempt to curb down the demands of the working class, because behind fascism is uh, lies the the, the uh, class conflicts, and who's going to get the uh, output of uh, the uh, commodities that workers produce? That's that's all there is in so-called democracies. What happens is that you. Uh, You make the workers believe that it's a fair system, so they voluntarily give up what they produce to the billionaires. But under fascism, they don't care. They hit you on the head and get what they want from you. So you are kind of forced to produce, to make the millionaires billionaires. So uh, uh, when, when you see fascism happening, That's why I would say that, you know, this is the time as one of the previous speakers said, if not now, when, because it became very obvious that although we don't have fascism right at this moment in the United States, uh, but there's definitely a work toward it. There's definitely a preparation for it uh, because, because, Uh, Let me explain the two different uh, approaches uh, that we'll see in fascism. One is the neo-colonial countries, or we can call them peripheral, or we can call them dependent countries, where the uh the regime is mostly brutal you don't even have even the remnants of democratic rule although you may have assemblies and unions and everything but the rule goes uh uh, the fascist rule goes because those countries as we said are dependent meaning that the even the capitalists the business owners in those countries have to dish out a certain proportion of their profits to the bigger bosses that live in the uh, central uh, countries or imperialist countries, as we say. So the exploitation is uh, multiplied there. That's why they cannot keep the working class under their thumbs. That's why you most of the time have fascist rules there which means that the luxury of having a democracy in the uh, first world or the imperialist world uh, allows, allows the system to pretend that there is a democracy. But and again, that exploitation in the third world brings resources to the central uh, countries where they can play the democracy game. But something has changed in the last maybe 20 years or so, which is that capitalism all itself is in crisis. So the crisis is all over the world and capitalism is not in a very good position. It means that the uh, profits are falling. It means that they don't, uh, they don't, Uh, get the same rate of profits they used to have before. So in order to keep the workers still uh, working and producing the same levels of profits they used to do, they need force. And this is what we are seeing today uh, happening in the United States, not only United States, Brazil, you are seeing a shift to the right in Britain, in Germany, uh, maybe not in Germany, but, you know, in other countries as well. Uh, so it is going to be, it's going to be very, very tight. And so we need to prepare for it now before we get to that point.
2: So uh, Let's, let's get Carolyn on this conversation. I saw you nodding there, Carol, looks like, uh, what, what are your thoughts?
7: Well, just to piggyback a little bit on what Mehmet said, um, I was just having this, dis- I have I teach history in, um, at Bronx Community, and I was just having this conversation with my students about the rise of bourgeois ideology. Hmm. But really, th- that basically covers the fact that capitalism and class conflict continues to exist. And in the the good old days, you could say liberty, equality, fraternity. But as I tell them, in all of the constitutions, property is enshrined. And so the reality underneath that is the fact that there's class conflict. And that is not going to go, to, go away, even if we talk about democracy um, and people believe, I mean, people believe that there's democracy. And that's because that's what they've been told. But, you know, then you have all of these issues that are popping up, like, you know systemic racism and and um, and imperialism and colonialism and so we have to name the name and and i agree 100% with Mehmet. that we have to say capitalism and we have to say that this is this is what class conflict brings and if we don't reinforce our side of the class conflict. If we don't protect ourselves against the ruling class, that's, it's really the fist behind the velvet glove. I mean, democracy is the velvet glove and fascism is the fist. And when they can't afford to use and rely on democracy anymore, they just shed it. And I mean, if anybody reads people like Mussolini, Um, you know, he talked about the fact that, you know, what we need now is not quantity, we need quality. And, you know, we have to shed some of the old ideology, bourgeois ideology of everybody getting the right to vote because we, you know, we're not in that position anymore. And so the, the, the problem is, is that nobody, or hardly anybody and in my opinion the left falls into this as well is willing to say the problem is capitalism and that the working class needs to fight for socialism because without that i think we can have expectations that there is going to be another war and you know the united states is going after china and you know i don't know that, that that's going to work out that way but but the need for war not only gains more profits for the capitalists because then they have a reason to, you know, continue with their war industry, but it creates the illusion that somebody in some other country is actually the problem. So it's the, you know, it's the Chinese or it's the the Turks or whoever it is, it's the French. But in any case, they're all straw dogs and, you know, in my opinion, the problem is, is, and I think like David ran into this, is the trade union bureaucracy, because in fact, they are unwilling to name the name. They want to, my union, the professional staff Congress is constantly having us send letters that, you know, this is not fair, that they've cut our wages, that, you know, that the city university is holding on to $400 million and is not paying. So let's write letters because we have the right to write letters. But in fact, the real muscle is withholding our labor. And I think that we have to follow the lead of you know, David and the Vermont, um, you know, AFL. And that has to be all over the place, all over the country. And we have to start mobilizing and saying, you know, we're gonna shut this place down as long as there are fascist threats. And clearly, you know, I I wasn't surprised about what happened. I I was a little surprised, but not really surprised. Um, And I mean, fascists have to mobilize, the shock troops in order to keep the working class and and minorities and people who have, you know, are losing our democratic rights. They have to have the shock troops. There were people at the Capitol that were wearing Confederate flags with guns on it. And some people had these Auschwitz shirts on that said 6 million wasn't enough. I mean, they knew what they were doing And, and Trump, knew what he was doing and he was relying on the more backward elements in you know in all of those some of them were workers but many of them were like middle class engineers some of them were unemployed which is what the fascist movement generally consists of so in order to beat them back the working class has to mobilize not in from union to union but in a general strike across the country. And we have to make sure to defend the rights of all of the, the, the democratic rights of all the people who are being attacked, the blacks and Latins and, you know, whoever the, the, um, the bourgeoisie is gunning for But ultimately, we have to make the socialist revolution if we're going to end the threat of fascism, because it's never going to go away, because capitalism is going to continue to be in crisis. And that's just the reality of of capitalism.
2: Carol, I want to ask you something about uh, teachers and COVID, which I think is relevant, but I think we have got to take a very quick little music break. And uh, Steve, we're going with Stand Together. Did you want to set that up at all before? Evan's not going to play the whole song, just a couple of minutes, but... Uh, it's the first time I had heard it. Did you want to say anything about it before we play a little bit of that?
3: Oh, it's, it's a great song about everyone coming together, working people coming together, and uh, let's go with it.
1: All right,
2: we'll be right back.
1: United, we're as strong as a mountain. United, we're as deep as the sea. Stand together, shoulder to shoulder. Sisters and brothers united and free. It seemed to be the right time, the right place. A love of country to the fore. Eager smiles.
7: it was nice
2: (laughs) cool right yeah it's great hey how do you say that band name it's it it, it's it i think you probably don't say it the way it looks right
3: you all i think i i'm not sure i've got to look at it
2: All right. Well, we'll figure that out. Hey, Chris Garlock here, Union City Radio. You're watching the Labor Radio Podcast Network's weekly live stream. We've got David Van Dusen from the Vermont AFL-CIO, Amit Barham from the Pacific Media Workers Guild, Trent Willis from the mighty Shoreman, Local 10, and Carol Lang. she's a professor at City University of New York, and of course, my co-host, the one, the only uh, host of Work Week Radio. Uh, very quick question for you, Carol, then I'm going to turn things back over to Steve. But one of the things I was thinking when you were talking about fighting back, um, I know it's happening here in D.C., it's happening in Chicago. I mean, you know, teachers are fighting back against these, you know, reopenings for COVID. And is it stretching a point to think that this is related to the kind of fight back that you're talking about? I mean, it seems, it, it feels like a fight back, even though I know that they're not fighting over wages or working, but it is working
7: conditions, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm not in, I'm in the AFT, but I'm I in a separate local. Right. I, I think that they're absolutely right, because you're right, it's working conditions and they're gonna die if they go to work. Unfortunately, in New York City, it's illegal to strike
5: right and
7: and so the taylor law is allowing my union leadership to prevent us from going out on strike Mm. and rather than saying that you know we're going out screw screw them We're, we're not coming back unless we all have amnesty but but it allows and this is unfortunately the case for so much of the union bureaucracy they they sort of hang on to anything that they possibly can in order to prevent the workers from being mobilized mm. so although we've had strike resolutions strike readiness votes all of that stuff in the union essentially the union leadership has figured out a way to maneuver so that you know that she her name is Barbara Bowen. She was unwilling to mobilize the ranks. And hmm. now the argument is, well, the ranks are too conservative and the ranks are too backward. So let's call 30,000 people and see how they feel right. instead of mobilizing and having a meeting saying, well, this is what we are considering doing. We're going to be with you. For the whole nine yards, we're going to go to the mat for you. Will you participate in this? And instead of doing that, nobody believes in the union leadership that is going to go to the mat. And therefore, you have workers that are fearful because it's two days pay loss for every day out. And and not that we're going to be fired, but adjuncts, I'm an adjunct. They don't have any reason to rehire me because there's no seniority and there's no job protection. So, So. Unless it's posed in a way that we're going to the mat for you, mm-hmm. we're going to organize the labor movement to defend you, then, of course, people are going to be skeptical about whether, you know, whether to go out or not. So, unfortunately, we can't change so far the direction of the union as much well. as we try
2: I, I would just point out, I mean, West Virginia, which is near where I am, you know, mm-hmm. it was illegal for them to strike and they struck anyway. So well, I'm just, we I'm just say, saying that-
7: you know. We say that, but West Virginia didn't have a bureaucracy. Really, but New York has a very strong labor bureaucracy. So, which is unfortunately the difference. Uh, um, bureaucracy.
2: Yeah. I don't know really anything about bureaucracy here in DC. We're We're good. <laughs> <laughs> Back to you, Steve.
3: Yeah,
7: well, one of the things
3: is this, this COVID pandemic, which has exposed uh, the great disparity of treatment uh, for working people in this country. Uh, frontline workers, they don't have a choice. They have to go out. Uh, healthcare workers, food service workers, meat, meat plant workers, transit workers, they have no choice and they're dying. Uh, they're dying on, on the job. And, you know, when we talk about what Trump is doing to OSHA, that is true. But in California, for example, on the docks of Oakland, and on the docks of Los Angeles, there are now 700 longshoremen in Los Angeles that have COVID, 12 have died. Oh, wow. And in California, OSHA, Cal OSHA, is run by Gavin Newsom, the Democratic governor, who will may probably be recalled because you have a collapsing uh, uh, healthcare system. Uh, he's outsourced the distribution of the vaccine to Blue Cross, a private insurance company. And uh, there are less than 200 OSHA inspectors in California for 18 million workers, and I know Trent, you had a an action on the docks to, to make sure that, that were these, uh, the work the 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 seafarers on the ship, the Princess, were protected, but also your own members are having to fight to, to get protection uh, from COVID.
5: Yeah, it, it's uh, since since the beginning of the pandemic, um, it's been a constant battle uh, with our employers here uh, on on the entire West Coast um, uh, when it comes to uh, Providing PPE uh, for my brothers and sisters while 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 we're trying to perform the job. I mean, it even gets worse um, if you want to to know the truth about it. Mm. Um, Even right now, um, you hear all this talk about essential workers and 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 workers who are who are uh, important enough to to warrant uh, um, expedited vaccination, and um, you hear about. uh, how essential um, the not the longshore workers are, but the work that we do. Um, we understand that that work is essential. Uh, our members have stepped up to the plate, um, and, and not that we're not getting we're not getting paid, but the job was the fourth uh, most dangerous job um, in the country or, or in the world before the pandemic. Right. So when you add the pandemic on to the job, you know, it, it, it kind of ticks up a notch. And, and we, ha- we have some members who who have chosen not to, to work um, because the risk is too high. Um, but we have uh, uh, members who have stepped up to the plate and came out and, and, and did the work necessary that it takes to uh, uh, provide uh, or our make sure that uh, the necessary uh, supplies get to the public and the store shelves are, are stacked. And, and, and all of the things that people need uh, to survive they have you know but what's interesting is uh, uh we have the, the uh, uh, port of oakland who uh, uh, is rewarding us by by uh, uh taking bids uh, for for non-union um, leaseers i guess you can call them for the port mm-hmm. they come in and perform uh, uh, make money off of, of off of work that that's in our jurisdiction, but since they're not in our employer group, um, they are uh, able to hire non-union labor. Okay, now the city of Oakland uh, has always been a a union town. I'm pretty sure that the citizens of Oakland uh, uh, will be very disturbed to know that the Port of Oakland is rewarding their union longshore workforce uh, by giving away our jurisdiction. Um, even here recently coming up, we have uh, what we call the uh, decommissioning of, of cranes, which is done by uh, our ILWU mechanics uh, on the dock. And uh, we were informed by the Port of Oakland that uh, uh, they have accepted a bid from a company um, that plans on bringing non-union labor to the port. Okay, so, so the, the, the epidemic has exposed a lot of different areas. Uh, where working people are being hurt, and and we've been hearing the word disproportionate a lot, you know. So you can you can actually break this down into a lot of different sections uh, when you're talking about working people. Uh, we 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 could talk about African Americans and how the pandemic is disproportionately uh, affecting African Americans, and how. Uh, can you talk the about local.
2: that, Trent? I wanted, I wanted to ask you about that because, I mean, here in D.C., it's
5: been a huge issue, and then I'm assuming out where you are as well, right? Yeah, because my my local is actually uh, predominantly African American. Right. It's right. Uh, uh, I believe it's about 72% African American wow. uh, are local. We've actually been faring, um, uh, knock on wood, here pretty good so far. We've had had a uh, few tragedies. Um, however, but we we actually dove right into the the um, prevention protocols immediately, and um, we had to pressure the employers. Um, there were a few disputes, a few work stoppages, and you know things like that that had to take place um, for the our employers to understand some basic guidelines that we needed to to uh, uh, keep ourselves and our families safe. You know, for example, during auto operations, you have what we call buses that take members back and forth to the cargo ship, and then they drive the cars to go park them in a, uh, a determined area. Well, we simply, um, um, demanded from the employers that our members don't interchange vans, that if you have three, uh, uh, persons per van. That those same three people stay with that van to stop the cross, uh, the the um, the chance of cross contamination. Um, and they fought us tooth and nail on on even though that was going to cost them no money. Um, it 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 might have delayed the operation a t- tiny bit, but they fought us tooth and nail. I, I I mean they they fought us until we had to actually we had to actually use our labor. To, um, you know, protect ourselves in that situation, and, it, and, and I'm, it's
2: thinking, very, I'm thinking a call to CNN might have done the trick.
5: <laughs> well, I mean, there, there's been things going on. We've had to stand by because they 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 uh, refused to uh, sanitize the machines we used to work with there. Uh, when the pandemic first started, we've had to. I mean, we we've literally had to to put our heads down and and swing out there, and and it's it's. Um, it's gotten a little better but there's still uh, uh, apprehension from the employers to to put the necessary protocols well not to put the protocols in place the protocols have been put in place and the employers have agreed to them to Just honor kind of, those yeah. protocols has right. been a struggle and uh and to and to stick to the true interpretation of those protocols you know so that the employers always have a different meaning of what something means yeah, so they do. Yeah. Spray and wipe doesn't mean spray and wipe to them. It means spray and leave, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. So so we've had those struggles. And and I completely agree with uh, Sister Carol when when she talks about um, um, the the only uh, tool that we have as working people is our labor. Mm -hmm. And and we cannot let anything divide that. and I mentioned that when I spoke the first time, meaning uh, uh, identity politics, racism, sexism, any of the isms, uh, uh, they can't be, uh, can't be allowed to be interjected into that formula. Uh, because when you allow that into, into the formula, it prevents everything. It even prevents us from organizing. When we're organizing within the labor movement, we have these divisive uh, issues that keep us from organizing effectively. You know, I I remember when we were organizing. Steve remembers this. We were organizing a, 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 for a May First rally, and we had the we had the advocates for police brutality getting into it with the advocates for mass incarceration. I mean, that's just dumb. You know, it's, it's the, that's the that's basically the same cause. You know, you you have a you have a a a, a, a black member of the LGBT community getting into it. With a black heterosexual member that's that's that doesn't make any sense it's, it's a divisive thing that we need to stop doing and we need to stand together as working people like they do in other countries and you, you go you go to france talking crazy and the whole country will shut down that's mm-hmm. that's what needs to happen and then and their government respects the working people in france they have to they have no choice
2: a quick question before we go back to Steve. You mentioned work stoppages. So what's the difference between a work stoppage and a strike?
5: Well, work stoppage is is basically um, um, legal until it's deemed illegal. Ah. In other words, per our contract, we have the right to stand by on safety when something is not right. Ah. On okay, so if for example, uh, um, if I had a job today and I went, there and the equipment was not properly sanitized. Then, uh-huh. per our contract and safety code, I had the right to stand by on safety, and the employers don't have the right to fire me until a, a grievance process has taken place. Gotcha. So, All right. Just so
1: that's what I better mean better by
5: that. Okay. and that happened. That happened like multiple times I'm <laughs> sure <laughs> <it did. laughs> <Just> the pandemic <laughs> happened.
3: Uh, the, the battle to protect uh, your the lives of workers is uh, is actually increasing and uh, there's going to be a rally i think on the 15th at cal osha the state building in oakland at noon to demand that they hire inspectors the labor movement in california has demanded that they hire a large number of inspectors uh the labor council for latin american advancement in sacramento called for them to hire a thousand in april a thousand new inspectors wow And they've actually have less than 200 they refuse to hire them so uh, i was going to go back to david uh, van dusen of the vermont uh, uh, aflcl because Today in, in Washington, they're talking about uh, 1.6 trillion uh, money, but you know there's still no national health care. You would think in an emergency, I know people are, are getting terminated from Kaiser, from health plans, right in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, so their an issue of the national health care for all working people, for all people in this country. And the other issue is you've got these uh, billionaires, multi-billionaires who actually their wealth has gone up 20, 30%. Uh, Elon Musk, uh, Bezos, uh, and yet there's no demand to put a capital tax. I know in, in Argentina they put a capital tax uh, on the billionaires in Argentina, the wealthy, to pay for COVID. The same thing could happen in this country. So they're talking about spending money, but who's going to pay for it? Who is going to pay for this money that they're, they're talking about appropriating? I mean, it, there are uh, so many billionaires in the United States that could be forced to pay for it. And David, you see that as a, as a question. I mean, if we're going to fight fascism, uh, isn't it mobilizing to protect working people, uh, the working people that were hurt? Many working people were hurt by NAFTA, a Democratic mm-hmm. and Republican uh, economic agenda, USMCA, which again, uh, moved jobs and encouraged com- uh, companies to go uh, uh, outsource their, their work.
4: Yeah, so listen, you're, you're getting close to something here, Steve. So recall we're we're talking about fascism, the present and future threat of a rise of fascism. We don't defeat that just by confronting them head on. I mean, we do, and we have to do that. And we have to be able to do what we have to do in the streets to make sure they never control the streets. But the real long-term way to defeat fascism is to present an alternative model. Uh, Now, what I mean by that is the Republicans and the Democrats absolutely share in the failures that we experience every day. As you mentioned, NAFTA was a Democratic Party creation that led to millions of union jobs being lost and economic strife and instability in places like Mexico. Let's not forget that either. Uh, Mandatory minimums, uh, the the failure to progressively tax the wealthy. These things have happened under the Democratic watch, uh, just as it has under the Republicans. So we can't be playing the shell game of thinking that because someone from another party is in power, our problems are solved, because they're not. Now, uh, I would disagree with some of the people in this panel, perhaps, because I do believe that uh, the, the the supporters of the far right are increasingly starting to reach down into working class uh, and low income communities. I understand it's the wealthy who are funding this and who are advocating behind the scenes or in front of the scenes uh, for this, but, we have plenty of disenfranchised workers out there who are disillusioned by the two-party system, are disillusioned by this shell game, which is national politics. They're disillusioned by the false alternative of the United States Democratic Party. So if we as organized labor do not show that there's another way, that there's a progress, truly progressive way, one that embraces things, that a majority of Americans, by the way, support, like single payer healthcare, like truly livable wages, like prevailing wages all across different sectors, like universal access to uh, paid family medically. If we do not create that alternative, and if we do not create the power base at the shop floor in the communities to push that through, to make that a reality beyond the limitations of the, the two major capitalist parties, then we will fail, uh, fail to get Uh, those alienated folks who are left out of the system increasingly on board with a progressive left-wing alternative. So that's one of the challenges before us. And if we do not embrace things like single payer, if we do not fight tooth and nail to achieve things for the common good, not just our narrow self-interest as unions. I mean, we got to worry about our contracts and our raises too. But if we don't go beyond that, then we are going to fail to create the mass of working people needed who are going to be able to shut down workplaces, that are going to be able to shut down this country, who are going to be able to fight back physically, if need be, against fascists as they rise throughout the United States. So that is what the labor movement must do. We cannot put our eggs in the basket of the Democratic Party. We cannot put our eggs in the basket of traditional forms of lobbying. We must build a truly mass movement, which is radical, which is progressive, and which is based on actual working people and union life.
3: And and that raises the question politically about the question of a labor party. There was a a movement for a labor party earlier, uh, Tony Mazzocchi, and it it wasn't able to go forward. But it seems like the uh, need for a working class party, a political party with a program that is going to take up these issues, these class issues, and and these issues of capital. Uh, I mean, the right of the capitalists to rule is what we're talking about. Because you look at this Amazon union organizing campaign uh, that's going on right now. And Bezos and, and Amazon are going all out to crush those workers, uh, to, to break, to prevent them from joining a union. Yet, yet there's no mobilization of labor. There's no demand that it should be criminal to prevent workers from joining unions. It should well, be uh, criminal to prevent workers from uh, protecting their, uh, for violating their health and safety. I mean, workers are dying because these companies, JBS and other Uh, meat uh, companies don't want to pay for it. You know, one of the interesting points that needs to be made in this discussion is in China, uh, Tesla and Shanghai, they protect the workers. The longshoremen in China are being protected. Why is it in China that workers who are doing the same work, working for the same companies are protected, but here they're dying on the job? And and that is because these companies run the U.S. government. That's uh, the only reason I can see. Because if if I I, I, I briefly...
4: If I may, very briefly. Now, uh, I don't want us to make a fetish out of the notion of a political party. Now, first of all, one thing I think I would agree with most panelists on the Republican Party and certainly the Democratic Party is failless, right? Absolutely failless. Uh, having alternatives to that is important and meaningful. I myself am a proud member of the Democratic Socialists of America and a member of the Vermont Progressive Party. We have a third party, which is pro union, which is pro left which wins races statewide and to the state house in Vermont, which is based on these premises that we're talking about, about like healthcare for all, liberal wages for all, union rights for all. So there are models out there that work. We need to build those alternatives and we need to do it from the bottom up, absolutely. Either by building out uh, the Vermont Progressive Party into a national party, uh, advancing the movement for a people's party, that's another alternative, or another alternative uh, to those two. But I still would argue that we can't fetishize a political party building. The real power comes at the bottom up, comes at the shop floor, it comes in the communities, and that's gotta be our starting point. When we have solidarity amongst ourselves, as Brother Willis says, that is when we are strongest. And we could have a party beyond the Democrats, beyond the Republicans, but it needs to reflect the unity we've already built at the bottom. <clears throat>
2: No, no, no. Well, I mean, just, just to re, uh, let folks know, uh, we've got about six minutes, and then what we do is we'll we'll wrap at the top, and we'll come back afterwards just for an informal session. So I want to get uh, get everybody get their last licks in before that. So Carol, and Trent, then uh, Mehmet, and then we'll wrap up with Steve. So Carol. Um,
7: well, I definitely agree with David that we have to build from the bottom up. But the fact is, is that from my experience in unions for many, many years, I, I have seen nothing but obstruction. And, and I used to be in, in, a, in DC 37, which was run by the DSA, or <laughs> members of the DSA, and they were even more bureaucratic than the, than the union that I'm in. So, and as far as I can see from the DSA, they go and, and support Democratic Party candidates if they think that they're radical enough to give them support. But none of those people are in opposition to the system. And we can build, and I think we need to build, and I'm looking, I've been looking forward to a mass movement in the United States for quite a long time, but the contradiction still remains. Capital is going to want to make as much profit as it can on the backs of workers. And that means, as Mehmed was saying before, that as the capitalist crisis deepens, Um, They're going to use more scare tactics, more, you know, brutal tactics, fascist tactics against the working class. And our defense against that is to build a working class movement and to meet them in the streets for sure. But we can't spend the next 25 years (laughs) battling these people because capitalism has reached its limit. Of how progressive it's going to be. And now it understands, probably better than we do, that it can't be progressive anymore, that it is losing profit, and that in order to gain, to continue to gain profit, they're going to have to really break the arm um, and the backs of the working class and the working class movement. And I, think that unless we have an alternative, I agree with you, but unless we ultimately have an alternative that says to the working class that we have a socialist society where the profits are, there's not a question of profits, where the wealth is shared among the people who do the work, that ultimately we're going to end up in a fascist society and possibly in another world war so this is just to stave off and i and i would like to see that because i would like to see workers educated into understanding that this really is the really ultimate i mean that the environment is you know any day now it's it's shot to shit. so we need to really collectively change society in a meaningful way uh
5: trent about 60 seconds Okay. Yeah. Well, just just basically, I, I I I absolutely agree uh with Carol. I think she hit the nail on the head when she talked about capitalism reaching its its limits here. And I think she I said it was it, shot
2: to shit, Trent.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was trying I, to. Pick yeah. <laughs> I was trying I to put a pile We can say whatever <laughs> we want. <laughs> yeah, shot the to, shot to shit. We could use that, you know, long-term <laughs> use. That kind of I think
7: I was a long <laughs> in my past <laughs> Right.
5: <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with her. And I think that that is, is uh, one of the reasons why you're seeing the rise of fascism. Hmm. Because, uh, and, and I said it earlier at the beginning, that, that fascism was a, was a tool of oppression, which is a, which is a bigger picture. Um, and capitalism needs oppression to survive. Mm. So, if, so if capitalism is starting to be threatened uh, by whether it be by people organizing, uh, whether it be by people fighting against racism or 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 private uh, or, or, or what, whatever the the, the the capitalist system is using um, as a tool um, to to oppress people, then it will continue. Uh, Um, you know, to fight
6: back.
2: All right. And then uh, Mehmet, you got about 60 seconds. And then uh, Steve, we're going to wrap with you.
6: Okay. Um, I believe that in capitalism, there's a contract between the workers and the capitalists to work together. This is not our ideology, but this this is what they say. Mm. So anytime that what they call capitalist crisis comes, it's actually... Uh, It is a crisis but the capitalists break the contract by going to a strike. Capitalists are on a strike now. Why? Because they are not investing in new technologies, in new factories, opening up new employment. They are not doing this, but they get away with it. So, it's only when the labor withholds that power that it has in its labor, then they get accused of uh, having, you know, good, the, the strikes and this and that. So, it is the capitalists who have broken the capitalist uh, uh, contract and they're blaming us. But we have, as Trent said and the others said, we have no other power than our labor. And even if we don't have a labor party, what we can do is, Join forces together, so that we can fight together. And you can start with a united front, with all the unions, with all the labor parties who call themselves that, and with all the um, movements, with uh, like Black Lives Matter and all other uh, you know sections of the society to fight back fascism. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Mehmet. Uh, Steve, you've got the 60 seconds to wrap. Again, just uh, folks, right after, just, just before that, we'll have a little bit of labor history, a little station ID, and then for those of you, and if we hope you all can, can hang around for a little while afterwards, But we'll do have about a 10-minute uh, debrief. So, to you, Steve.
3: Yeah, I, I want to thank everyone for, for, joining, I, for joining this discussion, because I think, and this is a critical thing, we need a debate and discussion in the entire labor movement that's why this network has come together this labor media network or labor radio network but we need to have an ongoing discussion of working people of union people labor people throughout the country on how we're going to deal with this crisis how we can unite and we need to unite i remember when the delta flight attendants were organizing uh, a union uh, there was no mobilization there was a big rally in washington no mobilization to defend them but if all working people come together in this country unite to back each other we will win We can organize millions of workers and the Amazon workers, these gig workers, they are suffering. They're under tremendous pressure and they're looking for a union, they wanna organize. So we have to bring together a united front of all working people to defend ourselves and our survival. In that process, there's gonna be a political development where people will get educated and will come together. I think that's the way that this change is gonna happen because the bosses and the billionaires know that there's a growing anger, a class hatred in this country against the conditions of people. They have no future. Young people have no future. They, they can't even pay their, their bills. They're living at home, many of them, millions of them. Uh, they can't go to college. College should be free for working people. So there's the basic structural problems now that are coming to the head and this COVID crisis is really driving them forward. So I think it's Time is of the essence. We have to start debating, discussing, and build a broad national debate and discussion in the working class to unite all working people. That is a critical question now. I think.
5: And can, so, I, just say, can I just say something real quick before we move on? Sure. Uh, because, um, I, I meant to mention, and Steve knows about this. That that was the the purpose of us planning the Million Worker March in two thousand and four. Uh, it, was, it was an effort uh, spawned by the IOW Local 10 to organize working people in our own name, independent from the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, you know, to organize to, it doesn't matter. We, you know, we talk about different political parties. It doesn't matter the political party, it's to getting the politician to do what the hell we're telling them to do, sure. okay? Uh, and we talk about these parties' ideologies. We don't care about your party ideology. You do what we're telling you to do as citizens. And that's what we got to get them to understand.
2: Cool. So hold, hold those thoughts. Uh, we're, I can say we're going to do a quick uh, little, little labor history, give us a little context there, station ID, and then come back and uh, let our hair down for about 15 minutes. So thanks to all of you for spending time with us. As Steve said, that's what this network exists for. We're not going to turn around overnight, but by having these conversations and by having our own media that we control, uh, I think that that's really going to go a long way towards it. So thanks to all of you. Um, a and to Evan Papp, our executive producer. David, what are you showing us there? I can't see that. Folks want to look up the platform of the Vermont afl uh, Progressive in the Country.
4: Look at our website, our 10-point program for union power.
2: All right. We'll get the link for that. Uh, Again, thanks to Evan Papp, our executive producer. We'll have a little bit of labor history, and then we'll be right back with a little uh, post. uh, We call it our after party here. So stick around. Hold on. We'll be right back. Thanks again.
8: I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1908. That was the day the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on the Lowe versus Lawler case, also known as the Danbury Hatters case. In 1902, the United Hatters of North America attempted to organize the fur hat company, D.E. Lowe & Company. Lowe refused to meet with the union. The union struck and called for a nationwide boycott of Lowe hats. The AFL assisted in popularizing the boycott. They worked to convince retailers and customers not to buy from Lowe. The company sued the union's business agent and hundreds of its members. Lowe claimed the union violated the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 by interfering with interstate commerce. The Sherman Act had been designed to control big business monopolies, trusts, and cartels like the Standard Oil Company. An 1893 case, United States v. Workingmen's Amalgamated Council of New Orleans, established that the Sherman Act applied to labor unions as well. In the Danbury Hatters case, the Supreme Court ruled that the union combined to restrain trade or commerce among several states. The union countered by arguing that the union did not interfere with the transportation of hats and were not themselves engaged in interstate commerce. But the union lost. In addition to violating the Sherman Act, the court argued that individual union members could be held personally liable for damages incurred by their their unions. The union was eventually held liable in damages amounting to $235,000. The AFL pushed back, demanding reforms in the Sherman Act. Partial reforms came with the Clayton Antitrust Act of 1914, but it would be another 20 years before the Norris LaGuardia Act would exempt organized labor from antitrust injunctions. Labor History in 2 brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Thank
0: you. You better listen my brother, cuz if you do you can hear their voices still calling from across the year. And they're crying across the ocean. They're crying across the land. And they will willing we all come to
1: understand.
0: None of us are free.
1: None of us are free. None of us are free, and one of us is changed.
2: thank you evan and uh thanks again everybody great show really good conversation uh we, this is where we just sort of uh, hang out and talk about stuff and uh say say whatever it was that you meant to say that we didn't get in in the uh the first hour uh we're welcoming patrick dixon he's uh, my co-producer on labor history today and let me see if i can get evan to come out from behind the uh the screen there he is evan is with uh, empathy media lab. Uh, let me just sort of get some reactions or comments from YouTube before we go back to uh, to our panel, um, Patrick.
9: Oh, it's a great discussion. I'm really pleased to join you. I know Gene Lantz was watching. I wonder if Gene's going to join us, but uh, I, I certainly enjoyed it. I had a, a question though. Um, after four years, it seems no one's under any illusions as to what uh, what sort of government uh, we've just been subject to in the United States. And uh, if we're going to label it fascism very well, um, 80 million odd people voted for that. And there seem to be some implications to that. If that's fascism, then it seems, David, you have fascists in the building trades in Vermont, you have fascists teaching in the schools, you have fascists te- you know, delivering your mail, you have fascists collecting the trash and if everyone's <laughs> going to be brought together yeah is labeling I mean, it fascism the best way of um bringing well, uh, those people so, back so in? just
2: a couple things folks so this is a free for all folks can just jump in also he yeah. that's not a squeaky wheel he has a bird i think he has two birds is what yeah. he's <laughs> just, just so everybody knows what we're dealing with well, right. since since you brought up the I might
4: have uh, fascists in the mail up here in Vermont. I have <laughs> an obligation to tackle that. Look, I think that there's a big difference between a far-right uh, reactionary uh, nationalist government that we've seen happening over a period of four years, and then it becoming increasingly fascist as the end came near. And so we, I think we saw a quick trajectory in a certain direction by no means, zero. I have uh, people I respect, frankly, uh, who have very political, different political views than me. I would never claim that the 74 million or whatever it is, people that voted a certain way are, are fascists. I think what we saw is in a fascist attempt to support that government, to uh, subvert our, the limited democratic process we have in this country. We can't write off people that don't agree with us Right go, or we will lose. This is why we have to create a different poll, a different alternative to bring working people in,
2: not to drive them out. Uh, let me get, uh, we'll get Carol and then I want to get Evan because I know Evan always has something to say. Uh, go ahead, Carol. Um,
7: I, I agree. I, I would never say, I mean, it would be a lost cause if we thought that um, there were actually 74 million fascists. But I think fascism is based on a philosophy of despair. And I think many of those people that came to Washington came because they are despairing of seeing any sort of alternative and really don't know where to turn. And I think that really should begin with the militant labor movement saying, what we need to do is organize the masses of workers. I mean, and I think, you know, as much as Trent, um, said, well, you know, you have this black LGB fighting against the heterosexual black. I I think that we have to be the defenders of anti-racist and anti-misogynist, all of that stuff. And, you know, I mean, I, I agree that the, that kind of division only creates issues, But we have to make sure that people understand that it's only through the labor movement that we can fight discrimination and we have to be upfront about it. That it isn't really that, you know, blacks and whites and Latins are all the same and we all get a shitty deal. Black people and Latin people and indigenous get a shittier deal. And it's up to people who are in a somewhat more privileged position white workers to make sure that they say that, and that they, that we defend the rights of, of Hispanics and blacks and people like that. So that, you know, we are, we are the defenders of the rights of, of workers in this country. And in order to be able to do that, we have to build that kind of poll. And I think some of those 74 million, some of them were people who voted for Obama. And this is what I'm saying that there, it's, it's a philosophy of despair. And if we can provide an alternative leadership, one that shows that we're fighting for the rights of workers and that we can potentially win, then we can win over some of those people who are just in a, right now you know, feeling despair. But we really have to say that capitalism is, this, is always gonna be this class conflict things are gonna go downhill. And what we need to do is develop a society that is based on the working class. And I think that means that we outright say we need a socialist society. Whether everybody agrees with us or not, that's up to them. But I think we have to be honest about what we think the real material conditions are that exist so that as people begin to become more radicalized, they'll know that what we were saying you know, has validity and, you know, has to be considered as a real possible alternative. Yeah,
10: and uh, I think one word that we need to really hold center is production. Uh, Our economy doesn't produce things anymore, really, like it did 50, 60 years ago. So in 1933, there's that fork in the road. One went Hitler, one went kind of FDR. And we need to obviously rebuild our entire infrastructure, all the municipal drinking water systems, transportation, uh, go on and on, schools, hospitals, research and development. That alone is not enough, though. We still need to have production at a higher rate that we can create the surplus capital to reinvest it so everyone has healthcare, everyone has schooling, uh, everyone has Social Security. So that's going to take trillions of dollars, and I'm always going to bring it back. We have the Federal Reserve. It's the largest credit creation Bank in the history of the world and we need to commandeer that away from wall street and put it to actually rebuilding our entire infrastructure at zero percent loans at 100 year bonds and uh, put 40 million people back to work at union wages
2: uh and welcome gene last gene is uh with uh, workers beat workers beat right I get it right. I got it right. We have we have eighty some shows, so forgive me if I I mix up that. But, <laughs> wow. but the workers be out of uh, out of Texas. Uh, I want to introduce them. But but to Evan's point, I'd love to have somebody respond to this. I was thinking about this the other day, um, which is exactly I was thinking. You know. We have all this infrastructure, we have all of these things in this country that need to be done. I don't care whether you're in Vermont or California or here in DC, you know, there's, there are, there's work that needs to be done, right? And apparently, since we can send checks for $1,200 or $600 or $2,000 to everybody, right? I mean, it seems to me like if we put a lot of these folks to work, then maybe ideology Would be much less of a problem or maybe i'm just missing something
3: you know the the fdr the reforms that were made social security in the 30s did not happen because roosevelt wanted them they happened because there were millions of people in the streets there were general strikes there were occupations the capitalists were afraid there would be a revolution in the united states they were terrified in fact they tried to have smedley butler a general uh have a coup in the united states that was a not known by most people but there was an effort to have a coup against roosevelt saying he was a communist you have a situation now in which obama is called a communist by the right wing uh the democrats are communists and socialists but that is far from the truth we talk about the wealth in this country there is wealth in this country to rebuild the infrastructure but it means get it from the people that have it which is the billionaires there's massive wealth and and that wealth disparity is growing in this country and a capital tax on the billionaires to pay for infrastructure. But the other- yeah, uh, but, wait,
2: but, but Steve, on that, and again, this is a free-for-all, but Steve, nobody's talking, I haven't heard nobody talking about, about a wealth tax. They're talking about how much money, but nobody's talking about a wealth tax. Remind well, that. Go ahead, but this, is, this is
4: the danger. This is one of the many dangers we now face as a labor movement. Recall during the Bush years, there was so much energy to get Obama in place, and then various movements which were gaining in strength, Dissipated. That's right, that's right. Leading up until January 20th, the right thing to do was to work in cooperation with friendly elements from the Democratic parties and even friendly pro-democracy elements of the Republican Party in a united front to make sure Trump was removed from power. But now that that's done, we need uh, the AFL-CIO nationally, we need our allies in all the different internationals, the different unions, to be now putting the pressure on Biden a thousand percent. And they can't rest on laurels and think, well, we got a pro-labor guy in, secretary of labor, we're all done, have a good day, (laughs) see you next week. Labor labor out, right? (laughs) Yes, and that's the exact
2: thing we can't do. We got to be mobilizing now uh, from the base. Well, 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 but let me just jump in again, you know, uh, all the stuff that I'm getting from the national now, you know what they're talking about because you got the same stuff. What are we talking about, the PRO Act. Is, yep. that what you, is that what you're talking about? Is that what you have in mind? I'm saying that there's uh, some great things
4: in the PRO Act, but no, I mean, we gotta go much further, right? right. And right. we're not gonna get anything substantial done, really, uh, in Washington by telling the Democratic Party leadership Nancy Pelosi what a great job they've done. Because frankly, they haven't. They're, they have not been reliable allies of labor. They're gonna do what we need them to do when we make them do it. As Steve was saying during FDR, there are people in the streets there are people doing work stoppages. We were united and we were fighting. And that's what we need to do again. But to do that, we got to make sure our leaders at the, uh, in the AFL, in other unions at the D.C. level, uh, to the international leaders, are seeing it with clear eyes as well and not prioritizing friendly relationships with the National Democratic Party.
2: Gene, uh, you've got a couple of comments uh, there. I know you want to jump in on this. Let's get, let's get Texas in on the
11: line. I thought it was a wonderful program. I, I congratulate you all. It was just great. Uh, I may have missed it somewhere, but I didn't hear the program of, about which we are supposed to be organizing, because I heard people say we a lot and I never could figure out who they were talking about because there's only nine of us here. <laughs> and I, I heard people say unify a lot. But, you know, we've been saying that since we were children. So. So a unify around what? I think that the PRO Act, if it were not a piece of legislation, if it were instead a political program, it would be a good thing to organize around. And I think that I think that what we have to do is not just make connections or try to unify with people. We have to get them to organize around labor. And not just unify, but to organize around labor. So well, let me one, yeah, let, so. let
2: me pitch that question to Trent because you don't know this, but it's I, I, every time the PRO Act comes up, you know, I ask this question because you know, are, are your members going to mobilize for the PRO Act?
5: Well, yes, well, we'll we'll will will mobilize for for anything that's in uh, in the favor of labor, you know. Mm-hmm. But but I I I agree with Gene. Um, I believe that uh, uh, this this uh, effort would be better served. If it starts in a in a grassroots type mm-hmm. situation, you know, uh, and and to go back to something that that Carol said um, earlier about when we're talking about organizing uh, workers uh, to uh, uh, reach that goal, the organizing of the workers is is more important than actually reaching the goal, and and what I mean by we got so many disenfranchised uh, uh, people in this country feeling the effects of uh, negatively from capitalism, uh, which I believe started back when I was too young to even do anything about it in the 80s when Ronald Reagan uh, with his trickle-down economics program uh, devastated a lot of people's futures, including mine, and my ability to do a lot of the things that, that even my parents were able to do but we have to be able to articulate that to the to the brothers and sisters that we want to get that point across to and also have uh, 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 a set of solutions and talking points and organize from the ground up you know uh, uh one part of the malcolm x movie uh, i like to watch that movie over and over again that's one movie that i can watch every time it comes on you know elijah muhammad said one key thing to malcolm x during that movie when he held up two two glasses of water and he had one glass of water was stained with ink and the other glass of water was clean and he said if you offer this stained glass of water to people if they don't have anything else they'll drink it but they'll realize they'll realize that they've been disenfranchised and the disenfranchised worker can go either way they can go fascist they can go left they can go severe left they can go anywhere <laughs> You see, that's the danger of it. That's how you end up with a Nazi Germany Mm -hmm. or you can give them the clean water and they'll drink that before they drink the dirty water. So we have to understand first that our message is righteous. It is righteous. okay. And we have to present it like it's righteous and we have to present results. So the thing that the thing that Keeps us from pre- presenting results is what I talked about earlier, and Carol hit on this too when I talked about the divisions within the organizations we're trying to establish. Are the are the are the events that we're trying to plan? Anything we're trying to do, we have this bureaucracy, internal business, even within unions. You have business unionists that are that are constantly at work. Uh, um, Uh, just like the government to destroy what's going on within the labor movement or or to to uh, uh, to to play individual uh, uh, self-satisfying games instead of taking care of the uh, working class as a whole you know part of
4: I, i i'm totally with you if before i forget if i may i know i'm interrupting i apologize but
2: this is the interrupting part, David. So go for it. Yeah, this, this All is the right, so look, look, man. It's okay. <laughs> you're
4: totally right, man. But the, the thing is, because we lack structures in much of the labor movement that allow for demo- true democracy, it it creates that confined space that allows those that fear change, that fear workers being involved, that fear what's around the next bend to clamp down.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: The these creative moves in different directions. So as our struggle is also one part of fighting for the better things for working people at DC level and all that kind of stuff or at the state house, it's also about democratizing our own unions from within to allow for a more robust engagement from the members. So, I mean, it's a multi-front war.
5: Right, there's always this push where when you're talking about a class struggle, any organization we're talking about, even if it's the mighty, like you you said earlier, the mighty ILWU, uh, which I'm very proud of, there's still a necessity to organize within the ILWU to get the results that you see coming out of the ILWU. There's not that that the ILWU as a whole is not this militant union, and every member there is like, yeah, we're just good. You know, we, really,
2: that's not what I hear. Brian.
5: <laughs> but we, we we do have opposition. Uh, to to some of our uh, our our, uh, our stances from members within, and uh, but the democracy uh, setup that we have uh, benefits us in a way where we get we get to uh, influence our members in a way where it's not absolutely controlled by the business unionist controllers. If, if you know, but, what
2: but, I, mean. I think one of the things that you have is you have this your local specifically. In your union specifically has this very sort of proud tradition of militants and independence that, not to say that you couldn't be bureaucratic and there probably is some bureaucracy, but there is this tradition of that. And one of the things, and, you know, uh, Steve and Patrick and, and Evan and I have talked about this, you know, this is one of the reasons we, you know, I think that the labor history stuff is so important, that the movement itself actually has uh, a real history of militants, and you know, Vermont. One of the things you know that Liz has been doing is digging up all this amazing, you know, labor history that people have forgotten. Um, and and uh, in West Virginia, when the teachers there went on strike, even though they were not supposed to, and they wore red scarves. They red, they wore red scarves because they knew that their grandparents had worn red scarves when they struck. And so that was really interesting that even a couple of generations later that they had sort of rediscovered their own history. And I'm kind of wondering if that's something that we need to get back to touch I mean, with.
3: That's, I mean, not having a labor party or a workers party means uh, in part that we aren't learning labor history. Mm-hmm. Labor history, and because if you don't have a political party, a working class political party, what history are you going to get? Working class history is hidden. You know, Howard Zinn talked about it. We did a program, he did a presentation, the hidden history of the American working class. He didn't know about unions until he, you know, until he went to work in a, in, a, in a shipyard. But one of the things I think, in an optimistic way that we have, we talk about organizing. The workers at Amazon, the workers at these, big, these companies now are looking to how are they gonna defend themselves? And the Amazon workers, when they try to organize a factory, if they try to have a strike, if we have 20, 30,000 workers come together to support them and shut down that, that warehouse until these workers do get organized and they are backed up, then that can be a tidal wave. And I think what happened in New York with the Teamsters was very significant because there were workers all over coming to support these Teamster products workers, IBT 202. It was creating a tremendous movement of workers saying, look, your struggle is our struggle. We need you to win because you're going to help all working people, and I think that that is really on the agenda. We cannot have another situation in four years in which it's the Democrats and Republicans and and nothing else.
5: Well, but well, Steve, else- we'll, just 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 to chime in here, real, real quick, I agree with what you're saying. However, you you know when we talk about the Democrats and the Republicans, I think I think we have that discussion a little bit too much because the the even if you go back to when Roosevelt was elected, he, he, he was elected on the backs of labor, but when he got elected, what did he say? What did he tell A. Philip Randolph when he, when he came to collect on all of the promises that Roosevelt made to him? He said, okay, now it's time for you to make me do
2: it. Make me do it.
5: He said, you make me do it because he had to have political cover. Okay, so anybody in office is gonna have to have political cover from, from big business in this country, they're going to have to say no. The people made me do it. Now, the now the 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 one uh, uh, unique thing about the ILWU and any other union that's been successful in this country is that when it came time for the fight, which was in 1934, the members made a very important decision, and this decision applies to if you're dealing with uh, uh, business unionist leadership or if you're dealing with a political party like the Democrats or the Republicans. The workers made a decision and they had to choose whether to listen to the business unionists from the ILA or to stick together and and, uh, stay together until their demands were met. And they made that decision to stick together and and, uh, stand together until their demands was met, which made the business union busting attempt (laughs) by the union leadership back in those days ineffective. So nowadays, when we, when we planned the Million Worker March in two, 2004, uh, we talked about organizing um, in our own name. For, for that specific purpose, too many times we let the, the political parties tell us what to do and mm-hmm. tell us who to support. Now, during the planning of the Million Worker March, we had the Democratic Party telling us that it wasn't the right time to have that demonstration. Well, what is the right time? Don't hey, let us know, Trent. Don't let us know. Yeah, how, how long has the United States been here and how long have people been oppressed in this country? It's been the right time since the beginning of the, the of this country. Is it was the, the the first day when slaves were, were were doing the work. It was time to strike right then. <laughs> right?
2: Definitely so, not the right time. Definitely not yeah. the right time. <laughs> right,
5: right. So we're so we're <laughs> way past we're way past the right time to act. But we, you know, we decided not to listen to the Democratic Party and we told the Democratic Party that this is not about you. This is not about the Republican Party. Matter of fact, you're not even invited to speak, OK, because we're because we're talking to working people. This is about working people and it's, and it's about a grassroots effort to organize working people to start demanding and taking action when they don't get what they want. Okay. Hey, and,
2: and, we need we need to wrap up actually a very, i think it's a quick question uh and i don't mean to put you on the spot trent but uh, just going back to what what steve was talking about the amazon workers i don't know about 20 30 000 workers backing them up but it occurs to me that during some of these battles you know your union had a disproportionate effect because you were able to refuse to handle goods and if i'm not mistaken a lot of amazon shit comes from overseas uh, has there been and again i don't mean to put you on the spot i'm, I'm just this is a question has there been any thought given to maybe refusing to handle some of that stuff for Amazon by your
5: guys well there there hasn't been any discussion uh, about that uh, within our ranks and uh, um, you know and of course I won't comment about that on <laughs> on zoom however um, we were um, told and we found out by uh, the uh, port meetings that we uh, attend that uh, there's been a new agreement uh, between the port of Oakland and Amazon where there's going to be a lot more uh, Amazon cargo coming here
1: uh-huh.
5: to Oakland um, yeah a uh, lot, lot more TEUs like they like to call them uh, coming to Oakland uh, with a lot of Amazon uh, products and you know and that goes to to what I was talking about earlier about us being a workforce that does essential work. Yeah, because a lot of those products being ordered off of Amazon is, is, is for example, hand sanitizer, toilet paper, mm-hmm. you know, basic necessities that people need. Even even the shipment of vaccines, right, and, and stuff nice. like that. You know, things that are life saving, uh, mm-hmm. masks and ventilators, and you know, you name it, we handle it. And uh, and I think that uh, uh, is a glaring testimony as to what. The ideology is here in this country when it comes to respecting the working man and woman. If you got these uh, 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 people that perform essential work that keep the country moving, and you treating them like trash, okay? and, yes. and you're using the excuse of all of these isms to do it.
2: <laughs> Trent, Trent, I gotta tell you, this is my latest thing. Is that essential workers again like veterans? You know, we you know thank you for your service and get the hell out of our way. Right. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. It's, just, it's just hey, I think we got to wrap. But uh, Evan, I think you have an announcement. Is that did
10: I read that right? Someone in our network, the uh, Labor Radio Podcast Network, uh, the Valley Labor Report is going to be live streaming. They're based in Alabama, and they've been participating in a lot of meetings around the Amazon warehouse uh, workers' drive to unionize. And so, if you are interested, uh, I shared a link there in the um, within the chat. <laughs> and also let's let's uh, organize a million worker march for dc and a you know 10 city strike and try to try to ratchet it up i know chris just turned his head now and i'm all for it hey bring it it's a, we got we got i it mean I, I mean that what what else are we going to do to try to put the pressure on so yeah we
5: did it before
10: Let's do it
2: again. All (laughs) right. Well, this is, we're going to, we're going to do this again. The uh, the, the live streams here every week. Really, this has been a wonderful conversation. Wonderful to meet everybody. Uh, This is, uh, this will not be the last time. Keep up all the great work that you're doing. uh, And remember to listen to your local labor radio show, wherever it may be. Uh, Evan's going to run our little uh, credit there and we'll see you all next time. Thanks again, everybody. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. Great having you on.
0: Better listen, my brother. Because if you do, you can hear. There are voices still calling from across the years. And they're crying across the ocean. They're crying across the land. And they will until we all come to understand.
1: None of us are free. None of us are free.